All right, let's take a look at um, Jeremiah. Jeremiah 7, 8, 9, and 10 we'll cover tonight. And uh, for those of you who just read 7, well, 8, 9, and 10 as well. How about that? It's all a unit, and there's no point in drawing out each chapter um, when it's a unit because they're saying the same thing in different ways. And so let's just get a little overview of it. I'm not going to read every verse, uh, but let's just let's get a little overview of it. I think I've got a little... I've, I did all my slides, and I'm not going to look at hardly any of them until I go to the end. So everything I worked on all week and gave to Giuseppe for translation has been nixed, and he's just now finding that out. When we overview it, the overhead, look at, before we look at the Bible, is uh, it centers around the theme of false, perverted religion and its consequent just punishment. At the center of this... This large unit is also a subunit. So the, the large unit goes from 7 to 10. The, the subunit is chapter 8 through chapter 9. It can be summarized as follows. Since the Judean Jews, that's going to be people that are not from Israel in the north, they're gone. Since they have foolishly listened to lies rather than the voice of God, what they will now hear is wailing. What they will now experience is exile in a land of foreigners. In other words, God's at the end of his rope with them. The end of chapter 8 and uh, through 9-11 uh, Jeremiah wails because of the desolation of the land. Then 9, 17, 26 picks up the theme of wailing and elaborates upon it. And God declares that since the people refuse to listen to his voice, they will now listen to wailing. Kind of like a parent talking to the child, right? So look at chapter 7. You've got Israel in the north that's gone into captivity. Actually, they've just been dispersed among the nations. What's left is in the south. Jerusalem is still the place of worship. It's this last little remnant of Jews, but even this last remnant of Jews, there's only a remnant within there that are believers. Jeremiah himself being one of them. Chapter 7, verse 4 says, Do not trust in deceptive words, saying, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Uh, this little threefold or three repetition of it on three occasions is apparently people were believing we're in the temple. This is the temple. Well, this is Harvest Bible Church. This is Harvest Bible Church. Harvest Bible Church. You know, if we were to think more highly of this place, this place is where we get our refuge because it's such a holy and godly place, right? If we were to believe that. Well, that's what they thought about their temple. We can hide out in the temple. We can be as wicked as we want, but this is the temple of the Lord. And it's in Jerusalem and God would never touch his temple, never touch his city. In verse 7, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Now that's goes back to verse 6 where it says, if you will just. You've been listening to lies. If you will stop listening to lies. Now, again, I believe that a Wednesday night crowd at a Bible church is not necessarily the audience that's being spoken to in the Old Testament prophecies like this. Um, and it's not one that we should jump on the bandwagon and say, we're all good and everyone's bad. Um, this is an old prophecy, but it's pertinent to our to our modern day. And we might plug it in to the modern church. Think of it like this. Israel was a large nation, still is. Large nation of people. If you're born into Israel, you have a, a heritage. You are by, by race, by culture, you are a Jew. Israel, Hebrews, it's all narrowed down to the word Jew. Um, but Jew, to be a Jew is not only a nationality, it's also a religion. And so there are people that are, that are from the nationality, but they have no regard for the religion. There's not many that are like that. Others have some form of the religion that they follow. But some are, are just the nationality. Some are just the religion and some are both. There's only a remnant within that group that actually believes 
what God has said, who saw the Messiah, believes that the Messiah is Jesus, and have received him. And then you've got, let's jump over to the church. Now, I think Israel and the church are distinct. That's why I'm a dispensationalist. God has a plan for Israel. It's a plan for the church. And when Israel believes in Jesus, they're part of the church. Um, so we got the church today. Is every, church is not a nationality. It's all peoples, isn't it? Of all nationalities. But the church today, is it like Israel in the sense that it's a large group of people who say they belong to the church? but they don't follow the teachings of the church? Are these churches filled with teachers that are lying to them or withholding the truth from them? So, but are they actually the church? They may go to church, call themselves Christians, but are they the church? So like Israel, the church is a group of people all over the planet, people who go and maybe say they're Christians, but there's a remnant within there that actually are Christians. So you can see a little bit of a, say a little bit, you can, you can see quite a bit of a parallel here. And I think that's where we should be thinking when we think about the prophecies of the Old Testament here and then think about how they might apply to us today. Verse 8 says, Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Um, he lists in verse 9, You will steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known. I put in the side of mine, cursing. People today curse. You know, the, the language people use today is outrageous. The way they bleep it out on TV, I don't even know why they bleep it out. You know what they're saying. Glad they do. Will you curse? Will you commit adultery? I mean, today, living together before marriage, it's nothing. People do it all the time, and it's adultery. It was punishable by death in the Old Testament. People do it. They curse, commit adultery. How about lying? Lying is okay as long as you, you are, uh, you know, doing it for your own benefit. It's you against them, especially if you're in sales. Um, people that hate Israel. I put that right here. Hating Israel. People who go woke. Going woke people are, hey, it's okay to have a kindergarten teacher that teaches my kids, you know, my little girl to be a boy or my little boy to be a girl. And, and you have no right to tell them they can't do it. You have no right to stand up and say, in sports you can't be a man and, and try to look like a girl and compete in girl sports. You can't do that. That's all part of what's out there today. And of course, abortion. So I would say, will you curse, commit adultery, lie, hate Israel, go woke, and, and vote for pro-abortion candidates? Because it's just part of what you do? Killing babies? No. Verse 10. Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name. You will call all those things okay. Then you will come and stand, me in, stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered that you may do all these abominations. He's asking the question. You're listening deceptive words. You believe all these lies, and then you will come to my worship center and say, we're in. We're delivered. Do people do that today? Verse 12. But go now to the place which was in Shiloh. Now, when the children of Israel came over the Jordan, under Joshua, Moses had died. They crossed the Jordan. The first place they put the tabernacle was in a place called Shiloh. That was the first place where God's name was. They would come together, the tabernacles there, everything that eventually went to Jerusalem was originally in Shiloh. And God is saying, you stand off and say, this is the temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord, temple of the Lord. He's saying, go back to the place in Shiloh where they first called that my temple and go see what I did to that place. That's what he's saying in verse 12. In verse 13, and now because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called to you, but you did not answer. 
this is God speaking. This is God. This is that crazy preacher at Harvest Bible Church, that crazy preacher on TV that's calling people to repentance. Now I say crazy. I've made this point before. We should never forget it. Before microphones, I'm going to take the microphone off briefly and I'm just going to talk normal. Probably not a big deal in this room, but how would I need to speak to make sure everyone heard if I didn't have a microphone, especially in the terribly non-acoustic room of our sanctuary? I would need to yell. Um, if I'm on the beach and I'm doing beach evangelism, what do I have to need to do without a microphone? Yelling. Before microphones, that's what preachers were. They were always yelling. That's why they got the reputation for being yellers and screamers. Why are they always so mad? They're trying to get their voice across. Now we just speak calmly into a microphone. But note, that's a recent invention. We can speak calmly and try to be calm. Back in the day, preachers were fiery, running around. The voice came out loud. Um, George Whitfield is known to have one of the most strong voices God ever gave. And, one, and Benjamin Franklin, of all people. Well, he was an admirer of George Whitfield, and he measured, he said, his voice could be heard by over 30,000 people. Imagine that. 30,000, that's a booming voice. That's a voice that's been trained to scream. And so when I say crazy, fiery preachers, this is what Jeremiah would be doing. Oh, that screamer, tell him to hush. I think probably the worst backslash best of them was John the Baptist. I mean, look at him. The guy had, he was a Nazarite, we believe, which means he'd never cut his hair. He looked like D. Snyder from Twisted Sister. <laughs> he probably did. He didn't bathe. He was wearing a, uh, he, a belt of leather with a camel and he ate locusts. He had bits of insects in his teeth. And he's going around screaming to repent. I think he was, he would have been a sight just to watch. Just to see. Let's go see the crazy preacher. But note this, a very sobering passage in verse 16. As for you, and this is God speaking to Jeremiah. As for you, Jeremiah, do not pray for this people and do not lift up cry or prayer for them and do not intercede with me for I do not hear you. How bad does a society need to get before God says this? Well, everything that I read here about Israel is true for our people today. It's true in the world in which we live now. That doesn't mean we must conclude that God's no longer listening to our prayers, but it's quite possible. I mean, I feel uh, in my own soul that there are some things you just don't pray for anymore. It's not coming back. It could. God could change it, and I know that. I never lose track of that. But when God tells a, a, a prophet, this prophet, Jeremiah, I know you're praying for these people. You're weeping. You're the weeping prophet. Stop. He's not rebuking him. He's not saying, I'm not listening to your prayers anymore. But insofar as you're praying for me to save these people, I'm done. There are some people that, that refuse to repent for so long. God just says, I'm done. You've committed the sin of which there is no return. 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 speaks of that. The sin that leads to death. I think it's also the sin of apostasy. Verse 18, the children gather wood. And this is talking about what they gather to make they would have to gather wood that would be to make their, their idols. And the fathers kindle the fire. And the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods in order to spite me. The queen of heaven today, her name is the Virgin Mary. And you know it. You know that this is what one particular denomination on this planet reveres this woman so highly. They pray to her. They think that she is the savioress or the co-redemptrix. With Jesus. Jesus is a man, and you know how men are. Men are rough and gruff, but women, they're soft and tender. Go to mama. Mama will 
petition her son and he'll give her whatever. That's why we go to Mary. So if you want to throw a long pass 50 yards down and there's only one second on the clock, pray to Mary, the Hail Mary. And Mary might prevail upon her son and Drew Pearson might catch that ball. How many of you know exactly what I'm talking about? Just a few older folk. There you go. That one worked and a few others along the way. Just a joke. But this is what he's saying. When I'm telling you not to pray for these people, this is why. My people hanging out in Jerusalem are going out making idols. Women are making cakes. I'll make cakes for the queen of heaven. What did they do with those cakes? Verse 20, therefore, thus says Lord God, behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast and on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. You'll note here in verse 21, the Lord of hosts, which is the Lord of armies, the, the God of, of war in a sense. He says, add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat flesh. In other words, they're still sacrificing. They're still coming to quote unquote worship. And God's speaking to them sarcastically. You come for worship, but you're not worshiping me. Verse 23, this is what I commanded them saying, obey my voice and I will be your God. You will be my people. And you will walk in all the way in which I command you, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked in their own counsels, in the stubbornness of their own of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers, how long has this been happening? Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt until this day, I have sent you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck, they did more evil than their fathers. So it's happened all along. God simply said, obey me. I'll bless you. They said no. And why? They walked in the stubbornness, back in verse 24, the stubbornness of their own counsels and the stubbornness of their own evil heart. That's really what, that's everything. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Tell people today, I mean, I've had people say before, you know, here's what the Bible says. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to do this. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm going to believe that. That's a, isn't that a dangerous thing to say. If, if we believe the Bible is God's word, and people will believe the Bible if it says what they want it to say. They'll even quote it. Well, the Bible says this, but then you quote, well, I don't think I believe that. How much of the Bible can we not take and still be a believer? Really? Well, that, that, you just narrowed down the list of believers on this planet by a factor of 100 in what you just said. And I think you're right. It's not negotiable. God didn't say, here, I'm going to negotiate with you on this book. And you preachers, Lance, Lance, keep this real light. I don't want anybody to know all the, the ins and outs here. They're not going to like me. Your church is going to be small. Yeah, call me Joel. What could be worse than that? Verse 27, speaking of those prophets, you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not listen to you. And you shall call to them, but they will not answer to you. I'd love to change that and say, but, but if you want to be a popular prophet, don't speak any of these words to them, and they will listen to you. Tell them what they want to hear, and you'll build big churches. And everyone will love you, and you'll be on TV, and you can write best-selling books. God telling one of the biblical prophets, you're going to speak all these words, and they're not going to hear you. He told the same thing to Isaiah. They're not going to listen. Verse 29, cut off your hair, cast it away. That's what he told Ezekiel to do. 
Ezekiel, we were told in Ezekiel, I think it's chapter 7 or chapter 9, um, he had to cut his hair. What did he cut, cut it with? A, a, a sharp razor? A sword. A sword? I surmise that when he did that, his face was butchered. I mean, you can't cut a, a long sword. Swords are not sharp enough to cut the hair on the face. Shave your hair. Cast it away. I did that last week. Shh. Let it all become the judgment. <laughs> but the, really, the joke was on me. The judgment came back on me. The wife said, you don't grow that back. I'm cutting my hair. I'll grow it back. Keep your hair. Take up a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. Don't ever think that God is not a God of wrath. It's throughout the Old Testament. By the way, you'll see some people say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. What about the God of the New Testament? Same God, aren't they? We see wrath in the, Old, in the New Testament as well. What do we think happened at the cross? God's wrath taken out on his own son. What do we see happening at the end, last book of the New Testament? The wrath for those who did not receive him at the cross. Last part of verse 30 says, They have set their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Topheth. What is Topheth? Well, Topheth was a pagan god of some sort, best we can ascertain. And we know where it is. It's in the valley of the son of Hinnom. That today is called the Kidron Valley. And if you've been to Israel, you, Kidron Valley is a, is a very nice valley. It just it surrounds the city of Jerusalem. Go right up and you're on the Mount of Olives. But it used to be a garbage dump. It was where you took um, things, you burned it, you got rid of the smell. Some who could not afford a burial would burn their, their, their loved ones in, in there. They were dead anyway. And others did the unthinkable. They would take their own living children and burn their children in the fires. And that's what he says. They have built high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and it did not come to my mind. Now, when the son of Hinnom, or the valley of Hinnom, moves from the Hebrew language to Greek, the word is Gina, G-E-E-N-A, or it looks like Gina, but it's actually got a little breathing mark in there. It's Gehenna. It's where we get the word hell. And so Jesus would picture this valley of Hinnom with the fires burning all the time as this is a picture of hell where the fires are always burning. The end of Isaiah chapter 66, it says where the fire burns and what the, the worm never dies, the fires are never quenched. It's amazing. Even some Orthodox people today, uh, our brothers in Christ are writing books out there and saying, well, there's no fire in, in hell. Fires of the earth, and that's going to be a different place. Well, yeah, there, there can be an eternal fire. There's, there's, if the Bible says it, if it's a fire on the earth and that's a real hot place, I'm guessing that the image that Jesus is giving is probably worse, or, or probably less, I should say, than that which it seeks to explain. Um, one, one, I heard one guy, um, uh, one, he was telling about hell, and the guy said, well, hell doesn't seem all that bad, and the way this guy painted the picture didn't seem that bad. Well, I'm not going to burn. I'm not going to. Oh, I'm just going to be away from God. I don't want to be with God anyway. Now, when we describe hell, we should use biblical language. It's nothing of of anything that anyone would want to be in. Lead singer for AC/DC, writing the song "Highway to Hell," he was quoted as saying, "Hell is just a great place to go to party with your friends." I'm quite certain that if you interviewed old Bon Scott today, he wouldn't say that. 
Not much of a party where he is. Now, that's just what I heard. I don't know anything about ACDC, but uh, that would be for really weird people to listen to that kind of music. Not me. He calls this... <laughs> he calls this place in the middle at the end of verse 32 this valley of slaughter. Um, and that's what it will be. This Kidron Valley is the valley of slaughter when Jesus returns. We believe it's the valley of Jehoshaphat, uh, spoken of later on, uh, where it's the valley that splits in two when Jesus hits the Mount of Olives. It splits in two, and that's where these people will come for their judgment. The valley of slaughter. Let's go to chapter 8. That time, declares the Lord, they will bring out the bones of the kings of Judah and the bones of its princes and the bones of the priests and the bones of the prophets. And this is, it's picturing the people that, okay, God is saying, I'm going to bring an army from the north and they're going to decimate the land. But don't think that those people who died before I bring those armies are going to escape. They may have died beforehand, but God is saying, I'm going to bring out their bones. I'm going to put it all on the land, the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem and their, from their graves. Verse 2, they will spread them out to the sun and the moon and to do all the host of heaven, which they have loved and which they have served and which they have gone after and which they have sought and which they have worshiped and they will not be gathered or buried. They will be as dung on the face of the ground. So you see, God, why are you saying this? Why would God do this? Lord, aren't you just happy that they're dead? That they're gone? They just, God is showing you, this is, I mean business. I will dig those bones up. I will lay out those bodies and they will become dung for the ground. In other words, birds will eat them and then excrement out on the earth, these people's bodies. This is what God thinks of sin, of the rebellion of his people. Verse five, why then has this people Jerusalem turned away in continual apostasy? Apostasy means to fall away. They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. You ever ask that about somebody you know, you love? Maybe somebody you went to church with? Maybe somebody that makes a profession of faith. Why do they do that? I don't understand how they can call themselves a Christian here and act like that. Maybe somebody said that about you once. Last two lines there, verse 7. My people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. Uh, Hosea, uh, book of Hosea, what is it, chapter Four, I think. Chapter four. Anyway, it says, my people are destroyed. Four, lack of knowledge. My people do not know the ordinance of the Lord. If they don't know the ordinance of the Lord, that falls on the preachers, on the prophets, preaching God's word. Verse eight, how can you say we are wise? And the law of the Lord is with us, but behold, the lying pen of the scribes, he has made into a lie. Last part of verse 9, they have rejected the word of the Lord. It's still the same things then as we see today, rejecting God's word. Don't want to read it. Don't want to know it. Don't have time to read it. Many people say that. Bible's a big book. You know, you look at it, you tell somebody, read a book like this over the course of the year, December or January 1st. We're going to start reading this book. A lot of people, okay, that, that's good. That's good. I'll, I'll give that a try. And, and they try, God bless them, but what, what gets in the way? Everything else they want to do. I mean, I'm a human. I understand what it's like. I, but the more you read it, the more you want to read it. It's a habit like anything else. I mean, do you want to look thin and skinny and bulky and muscular like me? Do you want that? <laughs> it's not that funny. But yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, skinny and bulky. Well, want to take, pick one or the other. Right? I mean, no one can look like that unless they're disciplined to look like that, right? How you eat, how you work out. 
What you say no to? I mean, I've got good friends tonight that, that think of me. They brought from Lupe Tortilla this big bag of chips, cheese. I don't know if they love me or hate me. <laughs> I do. I know exactly what they do. It's a joke, Connie. Come on. It's all right. And they do. That's good comfort food. I love it. I, I, I'm glad I don't tell people I love broccoli. They'd bring me that. But I'll tell you, there's a reason why preachers look like Coke bottles. Everywhere they go, they're served pizza, pie, Cokes. And in my case, you love me with queso. Thank you. It takes discipline. Discipline to read, to know. Chapter 8, verse 11. Or the middle of verse 10. Everyone is greedy for gain. From the prophets, even to the priests, everyone practices deceit. They heal the brokenness of the daughter of my people superficially, saying, peace, peace. But there is no peace. This is, uh, I was talking to a guy the other day, and he was at, uh, um, I'll just say First Baptist. I'm not going to say which one it was, but a particular First Baptist church. Every town's got a First Baptist. Some have a second, third. Um, and he said, yeah, this First Baptist church in this particular town, he said he was going to go, he introduces his sermon series, and he's going to go through Romans. And he said, over the next six weeks, we're going to cover Romans. Six weeks. That's enough for an introduction and maybe chapter one. <laughs> this is people saying, we don't need all those doctrines, those divide. Let's all just live peacefully and happy. Peace, peace. Let's not divide people with doctrine. Let's tell them all the good stuff. We know that preacher in town. He's what he likes to tell people when there's peace, but there is no peace. Folks, when we are conceived in mama's womb, we are at enmity with God. He is our enemy. How do we have peace with God? Through faith in Jesus Christ. That's our peace treaty. Without that, there's no peace. And I don't see that many Christians on this planet. Even among the ones that call themselves Christians. So if that's the case, how can we go out there and say, peace, peace, there's no peace. That's what false prophets say. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. That's what our society today, they don't know how to feel humiliated let's move over to uh, verse latter part of verse 14 where God is calling he's sending judgment from the north and he's wanting them to say for we have sinned against the Lord we waited for peace but none good no good came for a time of healing but behold terror from Dan by the way Dan is the northernmost tribes so we're speaking of the north from Dan is heard the snorting of the horses these war horses from the north are coming in other words God is saying you're in captivity Jeremiah don't need to pray for them they're going into captivity they did middle part of verse 16 the whole land quakes for they come and devour the land in its fullness Verse 19, at the end of verse 19, it says, why have they provoked me with their graven images with foreign idols? And one has to wonder that. Why, why did they do that then? But better question be today is why do we? Why do we make? We may not make graven images. We may not go into the garage with, with, a, with a knife or some sort of a woodworking tool and make an image. But we do have images, don't we? Some of those images of our children, and they, they get a lot of attention. Maybe a little more attention than God gets. Or maybe a picture of, of a car or, or something wonderful that maybe gets a little too much attention. Takes attention from God. Maybe it's a second home, third home, 
Maybe you got four or five homes. That takes attention away. Well, we need to go spend time in this home. At this home, maybe you should sell your homes. Not always. But we do the same things. It's still happening today. Jeremiah begins to weep. He is the weeping prophet. Chapter 9. He says, oh, that my head were waters. My eyes a fountain of tears that I might weep day and night. For the slain of the daughter of my peoples. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place. I love this. <laughs> he says, because I've felt this. You, we've all felt this at some level. Oh, that I had in the desert a wayfarer's lodging place that I might leave my people and go from them. This is from that old commercial, Calgon, take me away. You remember that, remember that commercial? Wants to take Calgon bath? That's what he's saying. For all of them are adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. This is Isaiah, or Jeremiah saying, if I could just get away. They bend their tongue like a bow. Lies and not truth prevail in the land, for they proceed from evil to evil, and they do not know me. Uh, it's amazing today in, in, in politics, what's left of Christianity in our government is typically uh, Roman Catholicism. I mean, Joe Biden says he's a Roman Catholic. You wonder what? What? Am I right? Say again, John. He makes a great Roman Catholic. He makes a... <laughs> Was that sarcasm? John, you're above that. He says he's Roman Catholic. Says he believes in God. At one time, he believed in the sanctity of life. Uh, not anymore. At one time, I mean, he would never have, you know, go back 20 years, 30 years, he would never have advocated the things he's advocating today. And yet they do today. And they still talk about God as if God is pleased with him. You wonder, have you ever sat back and wondered, how can these people in government not be scared to death, especially when you're in your 80s? Yeah. Yeah. Death, death is knocking at the door. Not just because you're in the 80s, it's, not, it's always knocking at the door. But when you've lived as long as he have and you can't remember what your name is, someone should remind you of the, of the wrath of God that's coming. I am, I am dumbfounded at how so few people are afraid of God. To be afraid of God, the fear of God is so lacking today. And, and the, the boldness with which they, they, uh, they spend their webs, it's amazing. Verse 7, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Again, this God of war, the God of armies. Behold, I will refine them and assay them. What else can I do because of the daughter of my people? Their tongue is a deadly arrow. Look at verse 9. Shall I not punish them for these things? Declares the Lord on a nation such as this. Shall I not avenge myself? Verse 11. I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a haunt of jackals. A jackal is like a dog. Little dogs running around. I mean, it's a little, it's an, it's an uptick from a dog. It's a little more wild. And I will make the cities of Judah a desolation without inhabitant. And he did. Uh, we, we know about, it's recorded what Nebuchadnezzar did to the towns, the places in which he, he destroyed. Verse 13, the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but have walked after the stubbornness of their heart and after the bales, that's a God, as you know, as their fathers taught them, blah, blah, blah. Verse 16, I will scatter them among the nations whom they neither whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have annihilated them. Go back to the beginning there of that little passage there in verse 13. Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, that's the same thing as saying my word. It's one thing to hear the word of God and say, I don't want to believe that. That's pretty basic. But it's really no different, maybe worse, to just say, I'm never going to read it. I don't care about it. I've never read the Bible. 
I don't need to read the Bible. That's just, that's essentially saying, I don't want to know. I don't know. I don't want to know. I'm ignoring God. And then to have the gall to say, well, I'm a good enough person. Why wouldn't that God let me in his kingdom? To not know the word is to talk like this. It's to say the things like this. To not know the Lord and to, to, uh, to disobey him and then to act like, oh, we're God's people. That's, that's everywhere. We see that all over the place. Even places we call the church. Verse 20. Now hear the word of the Lord. Oh, you women. And let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing. And everyone her neighbor a dirge. It'd be a funeral song. For death has come up through our windows. Look at verse 23. Thus says the Lord. Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom. I've got a star right here. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. And people do. People like to boast of their wisdom. I'm smart. Put up our diplomas on there. And, and uh, you know, if you, if you ever put out a resume, the resume is an I love me piece of paper. Look at what I've done. Here's all the alphabet soup behind my name. Here's what I've accomplished. Here's what I did. I love to read it. Actually, I hate to read the ones that are applying for jobs in a church. They think that numbers are somehow the trophy of success. I took this church from this many people and we made it that many people. Well, what did you do to get there? That's suspect. That's not a trophy. I took this men's group and there were three of us and then I made it into 30 of us. And we took this, we took that, and the budget went from this to that. Oh, wow, that, that doesn't tell me anything. That means little to nothing, but it's boasting in what I've done. Wisdom. Let not a man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You want to know what pleases God? There it is. I want to boast that I know God. What have you accomplished, Lance? Nothing. But I know who God is. You might know an important person. You might know a celebrity. And you might name drop that person. Yeah, I was talking to so-and-so. Yeah, I know Tim Tebow. You know, Tim, Tim and I were talking the other day, and he called me up and said, hey, what are you doing? You know, I know Tim Tebow. Tim Tebow seems like a nice guy to me. I'd like to be friends with Tim. I always like Lance Berkman because he's got a really good name. If you're boasting about who you know, we like to do that. But to say, look, I know this important person. Hey, I know the creator of heaven and earth. I know him by name. I have a personal relationship with him. He listens to me. He loves me. That is what we boast about. And what is this God? He exercises loving kindness. This is a made up word, I told you. Uh, the, The Hebrew word is hesed. And it means faithful love, loyal love, kindness, loving kindness. Uh, uh, William Tyndale created this word to try to bring together what hesed means. He exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. And God delights in these things. I want to do the things that delight God. Do you? In in spite of all the things that I might do that, that don't bring him delight, these are the things that do. Verse 25, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised. That's people that have, men can only circumcise a man, men that have been circumcised and they look like they're Jews. That's a Jewish man, he's been circumcised. But that's just a bodily mark. Do bodily marks mean anything? Can I get a tattoo that says I are a Christian? Can I get a brand mark with a, with a, a, a fish over here, you know, that protrudes over here? Fish, or can I get Hebrew across my chest that say Yahweh? Can I do, would that make me a Christian? Would that make me a lover of God? 
It's the same as these as circumcisions. Circumcision means nothing on the flesh of it. It means nothing to the heart. It's a transformation of the heart. This front row here, let me separate. I have no doubt. Yeah. It's our resident Baptist is who it is. <laughs> chapter 10. You see here, it's a, I've got a little subtitle at the beginning of chapter 10. It says, a satire on idolatry. And so I love the satire because it's sarcastic. Um, chapter 10, verse 1. Word of the Lord, word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the nations or be terrified by the signs of the heavens, although the nations are terrified by them. For the customs of the people are delusion because it is wood cut from the forest. The work of the hands of a craftsman with a cutting tool. Now, if you've ever read your astrology guide or your, what is it called? How did you know that? (laughs) If you've ever read your horoscope, I mean, yeah, it can be funny, I guess, you know, but it's ridiculous. It's all from the devil. It's written by some schmo that's, whatever, I could write those and be, be, have some semblance of truth in it. But that's what he's talking about. They're trying to terrify you by the signs in the heavens. Uh, it's, this is the work and, and by the, what they make with their hands. He says at the end of verse 3, the work is the work of the hands of a craftsman or the cutting tool. They decorate it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails, with hammers, so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. I I don't know what that means. But (laughs) I've never seen a cucumber field. But it's, if you're out there, you're really in a pickle. That, That just came to me, too. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field, cucumber field, they cannot speak. They cannot be, they must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them. That's what their idols are. They're nothing. Yet people worship them. People today worship people when people can't help anybody. Maybe give you a little money. Maybe take you to the hospital. Maybe do some surgery on you. But whatever successful surgery is done, you're still going to die. We put our trust in money. We put our trust in ourselves. I am my own God, I will decide. Lightning hits you, you know, you don't decide anything. Verse 8, chapter 10, they're all together stupid and foolish. That's what I always tell when people say, I've said the word stupid from the pulpit, and people, women, women will come up and say, we don't say that word in our house. Okay. So I came up with pig-headed, thick-headed, but it is in the Bible. Now, that doesn't mean you go around and say, you're stupid. That's not, that's not nice. But the word itself encompasses something that's very theological. It's people that reject God. They are altogether stupid and foolish. In their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood. You are worshiping wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. The work of a craftsman of the ha- in the hands of a goldsmith, violet and purple are in their clothing, They are all the work of skilled men. Verse 10, I've got it circled. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. In his wrath, the earth quakes. At his wrath, the earth quakes. And the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you shall say to them, the gods that did not make the heavens and the earth will perish from the earth and from under heaven. Note this, it is he who made the earth by his power. How did the earth come to be? God made it. He who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding, he has stretched out the heavens. 
When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of waters in the heavens. He causes the clouds to ascend from the end of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain and brings out the wind from his storehouses. Remember who the, who the, the Israelites gave credit to that? Baal. Baal, in their mind, was the God of these things. Hence, Jeremiah is saying, no, he's not. Your creator God is, why would you go to this? Why would you believe these lies? I would say the same thing. And I often say that the Bible church is mop-up duty sometimes for the people that have come from these denominations where they've never been taught. Or they've been taught something wrong. And we have to say, okay, well, I understand you don't believe in election, but we're a Bible church. And the Bible teaches election and predestination. It's in there. I can't, I can't say anything other than that's what's there. Well, I don't believe that. Okay. If you will stay with it, you will. Let this teach you. Don't foist your beliefs on it. This is God speaking. Let God's word say it. You're trying to bring people out of this world of, of hurt and pain and false teaching to get them to believe what's been here for thousands of years. This is not new. I certainly didn't write it. Verse 16, the portion of Jacob is not like these. That, that is God's portion. Jacob is another word for Israel. For the maker of all is he, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. Well, let's stop there. So whenever you study a passage, you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again, is whenever you study a passage, you always want to ask, I mean, on the most basic levels, what does this say about God? What does this say about man? What does this say about God's relationship to man? Is there anything in here that we must go out and do and obey? It, there's not a lot there to, here's what you got to go do, but we, we know that here's what God hates. He hates disobedience. He wants us to worship him and to know him. So about God, there's no bifurcation in the Bible whereby the Old Testament God is a God of wrath. Uh, and the New Testament, God is a God of love. We made this point earlier. Both Testaments present the character of God as loving, but also righteous and wrathful. And when you think about the cross, I mean, I, I remember, I've told you the story before. I was sitting with a woman, uh, was at Sam Houston State, and we were talking, came across the fact she was a believer in Christ. And, and we got to talking. At the time, it's ironic I bring this up because I remember it, because I've always loved Jeremiah, I've told you. And I was reading Jeremiah at the time, and uh, I must have dropped the word wrath. The wrath of God. And she said, oh, I'm sorry. I don't believe in the wrath of God. I don't believe in any wrath. We don't believe that. She was very, matter of fact, you know, slinging that head around. Oh, nope, not me. And I w that was the first time I'd ever heard that. What are you, what are you, what are you talking about? What, what are you talking about? I don't believe in God's wrath. And I said, what do you think happened at the cross? Honestly, what happened at the cross? God sent his son and took out all of his wrath on his son for our salvation if we will believe in him. She had no answer for that. I had no answer for her not believing in God's wrath. It's throughout the Bible. What Bible are you reading? But she was adamant. I do not believe in God's wrath. Introduction. I learned so much. At, um, it was a master's program in psychology. <laughs> I mean, if you want to learn all the things not to believe and what people really think, enroll in a master's yeah. program of psychology, yeah. You will, I learned more there than I did in seminary. I really did, about people, that is. God reveals his truths over and over with great patience. Even before his wrath is revealed, he warns again, as we see here, over and over. It's like a good parent. You know, please, please do this. Please do this. And then at some point, you know, the kid's in the middle of the road, and there's an 18-wheeler coming, and you're yelling, get out of the road. Last warning before the, the truck smashes you. That, that's the call of love might be at a loud pitch. It might sound angry. 
But this is how God warns time and again. We see this about God. Man, in spite of knowing God and seeing what he thinks of sin, still sins without a conscience. Remember, God has been showing, Judah, you're what's left. You saw what I did to Israel. You saw what it, faithless Israel, you're treacherous Judah. You saw what I did. They saw all the, the plagues in Egypt. They saw it when they came out of Egypt. But they, it didn't bother them. It didn't bother them a few days later to make another idol of gold and try to get rid of Moses. Who wants to get rid of Moses? Who comes into town, tells Pharaoh, let my people go. You see these 10 plagues that affect all of Egypt, but not touch Israel. You get out and you go, let's get rid of this guy. That's like winning five Super Bowls in four years and saying, let's get rid of the quarterback. We need a new guy. But that's what they did. You and I are that way. We might make fun of Israel, but mankind is that way. What does this say about man? It says that man, in spite of knowing God and seeing what God thinks of sin, how much he hates it, we still sin without a conscience. Some conclusions is that God states clearly that leaders who use their influence to convince people to trust in unbiblical lies and turn away from true worship of God will face severe judgment. I wouldn't want to be some of the preachers today. I would not want that. Yet God also holds us responsible for discerning the truth about sin and repentance, even if or when our pastors withhold the truth. In other words, people that are not engaging in the truth, you might say, well, that's not my fault. That's the pastor. Pastor didn't tell me. They're held responsible, as Israel was and will be. You remember the Nuremberg trials? I mean, were the, were the, were the SS, were, the, were they convicted because they could just say, well, Hitler told us to do it. We were just men under orders. They all went to prison or were killed. It was determined. I don't think that would happen today. So even, even those who aren't hearing the truth, who are going to a church where I think they're under judgment by hearing no truth spoken from God's word, they're still responsible for the truth. Our culture is pushing hard to redefine what sin is. I shouldn't have even put that. I should, but just to, to get rid of the word altogether. And often it downplays or trivializes social sin in various forms of idolatry or false worship. Many today promote the lie that the Christian faith is hypocritical, narrow, intolerant. Some argue it is morally archaic and only narrow and cold people would ever adhere to it. Once the biblical standard for sin is removed, however, people no longer feel the need to repent. That's why the word repent is such a bad word in churches today. Because it implies you're a sinner. You're wrong. I mean, I love to watch Ray Comfort. I just, I think, I, can, I never grow tired of watching Ray Comfort share the gospel with these people. I wonder how many he's got to get to before he gives to the ones where he can put up on the website and, uh, and, and show us. And I was watching one today, and it was actually, he was, the theme of it was about Brock Purdy, talking about Brock Purdy's um, Faith, who's the quarterback of the 49ers. It's real, my friends. It's really real. Even Ray says it is. So if Ray says it is, it's real. Uh, but it really is. And he shows all these clips of Brock giving glory to God. Um, and then he goes through, he's got like three people. that, that they're, they're listening. They're listening to the gospel. They're listening to the truth. Uh, and they all think they're Christians, but they're not. It only takes a few questions to get to the root of it. It's amazing how many times Ray will ask somebody, have you been born again? When they tell him how good they are and how much they love God, and he says, have you been born again? They go, what does that mean? How, how, explain that to me. So he does. It's beautiful. Um, why do people who go to church not know what it means to be born again? What does Jesus say? Lest you born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Born again. Regenerated. The gospel offers us salvation and deliverance from sin through Jesus Christ. But in order to accept this, we must acknowledge that we're sinners in need of salvation. Which means you've got to tell people they're wrong. They're sinners. 
which means you're going to have to go to go to a small church. A challenge for Christians today in engaging unbelievers is to proclaim the biblical message about sin and to refuse to let the culture redefine it or to refuse to let the fear of going to prison or jail keep you from telling it. I hope you folks will stay behind me. I hope you'll stand behind me when they come and arrest me one day. Might be Sunday. I hope you do. I'm certain many of you will not. You'll go off and find another church. Just wash your hands of it. Don't want that. I hope that you'll stick with me. We're in this together. I'd do it for you. But the day is coming. I mean, if I was preaching this in Oregon, I'd already be in jail. If I was preaching this in in New York, I'd already be in jail. You'd have been persecuted as a bunch of cold-hearted cynics. According to a recent study of the Barna Group, nearly 9 out of 10 Americans own a Bible. That's pretty good. 90% of people own a Bible. And the average number of Bibles per household is 4.7. The problem is that while 62% of respondents said that they wished they read the Bible more, only 37% said that they had read the Bible once a week or more. That's not that bad. You'd thought worse, right? This means that they have allowed someone else to think for them. Yet the biblical illiteracy among pastors today, folks are in a heap of trouble. Pastors. I tell pastors, as I, and I always will, and hope to tell more. And if I retire from this job, I hope I become a pastor to pastors. And it will be, guys, you, you'll never get people beyond what you are. You can, if, you, if you're not reading the Bible as a pastor, what are you doing? Isn't that what we're, I'm supposed to be an expert on this book. Know this book. Do what this book says and teach you to do the same. If I know nothing, if I'm not reading it, oh, I've got an appointment with this person. I've got marriage counseling with this. I've got a funeral. I've got three funerals today. I've got to do this. That's what pastors and priests spend their times doing. Go to lunch with this. I've got this. I've got that. Oh, I'm a, uh, a chaplain to the fire department, a chaplain to the police department. Oh, I've got to go speak at this and speak at that. Tell your pastor to stay in his office. Lock him in his office. And don't let him come out until he's got a message from God for you. Our job is to equip you for the work of service. It's not for me to go out and knock on doors, although I would. It's for me to equip you, us as pastors, equip you that you go out and do it. Multiply it that way. And if no one listens, so what? You did what you were supposed to do. You did what is obedient to God. Regardless of all the misinformation about what Scripture says, someday we will be held accountable for the things that God requires. Someday. Will we not? Every one of us. What we learn at this church from this word, we're responsible for. Let's pray. Lord, as the church of Jesus Christ, as those who profess to know and love Jesus, may our lives reflect it pray, Lord, for all of us that we would be strengthened to love you more, to to seek to love you more. That can only happen by knowing you more. Give us a hunger and a thirst for your righteousness. I pray that you would fill us. You say you will. You said you would on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. May we hunger and thirst for it. Lord, and if we don't hunger and thirst for it, may we desire to hunger and thirst for it. Answer that prayer for us, that we might know you and love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.